as we hop into our passage today in verse 22. You'll know that it comes as we read on the heels of 19 through 20. And there are at different places in Acts, since it's such a long book, the, the weaving together of old stories, Stephen, all the way from chapter 7, and then the interlude period, which, which we have covered uh, thoroughly. Now, <clears throat> Luke, wanting those things to be in your mind, comes to verse 22, and wanting to speak about these Christians who formed in Antioch, really a, a large group of Christians who were of, not of uh, Jewish descent. And we're going to get an introduction to how the ministry has now opened up to the rest of the world beyond Jerusalem. In our passage, we find that there is a report that comes to Jerusalem, which is of the Gentile conversion. And Jerusalem at this time is like the headquarters of church. This is where all the apostles are. This is by and large where all the Jewish Christian church is. And so their response in hearing this report is to send Barnabas. He's a representative. We, in, in this sense, he's, a, he's an apostle or a sent one of not of Jesus Christ, but rather of the church in Jerusalem. And he is going to check out the situation, see what's going on. Now, Barnabas, as you know, we've been introduced to him in chapter 4. And his given name, his birth name, is Joseph, though he's called Barnabas because he had earned a reputation among the apostles of being a son of encouragement. Or you could say son of exhortation, as we see he goes in there. That, that word encouragement can be comfort consolation, all sorts of other things. It's a flexible word, but that is his name. That is son of encouragement, consolation, exhortation, something like that. And that was in chapter four, we saw that. So Barnabas is not a new character. He also was one who was unafraid of, of Saul. We, we saw that Paul or Saul, uh, he's variously called, is ravaging the church at one point in time, and then gets miraculously converted, and everybody around doesn't want anything to do with Paul or Saul. They are really fearful for their lives, thinking that this might be a ruse. He might not actually be a Christian, but Barnabas has courage. He's not afraid. He actually takes Paul and brings him personally before the apostles and himself vouches for him and gives the testimony of his conversion such that the apostles at the end of Barnabas's testimony about Saul, who's previously a, a severe persecutor of the church, the apostles extend the right hand of fellowship and welcome him. An amazing man that we have at the forefront of our text here. This is, this is who goes and who's the representative and, and the very little that we know about him. He's a worthy representative of the church in Jerusalem for this large group of Gentiles in Antioch. Now, just that is the backdrop. And now what I want to do is go through a couple of different phrases that we see here. And we, we're going to take a look at the first phrase that we see in verse 23. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God 
he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, I just want to focus on what is a passing phrase, but deserves our attention. That is, what did he come to see? Well, if we were just working off verse 22, we'd say a bunch of Gentiles who were converted. He came to verify that, um, put his seal to it, as it were, being a representative of, of that church. But what Luke says is he came and he saw the grace of God. This is an amazing way to describe what he's actually seeing. We know that he's seeing people, converted Gentiles, which he labels by the invisible reality. That is the grace of God. God is a spirit. He's not seeable except Christ, who is the God man. Uh, the spirit and the father are invisible. And so is the grace of God. It's invisible. But he sees the fruit thereof. This is the grace of God too. The fruit of conversion is what he saw. He saw a people who had uh, in repentance turned and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. These people who were baptized and added to the membership of the local church in Antioch. This is the grace of God. It is the product of grace, meaning not a product of works nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but the extravagant and unmerited favor of God. Secondly, to this grace which he beheld, he responds in two ways particularly. We'll talk about the first way just briefly, and then I'm going to make some application here. Notice in our text in verse 23, when he saw the grace of God, He was glad or he was joyful first off, and then he exhorts them. Upon witnessing, he is filled internally and expresses it externally with joy. For others, I can imagine this would not be the case for seeing a huge, massive move of people come to Christ, maybe for the Muslims or the atheists, they might feel rage for Catholics or other sub-biblical cults, maybe disappointment for secularists, uh, confused indifference. But for the heart that has been transformed with Christ, seeing the conversion of a mass number of people brings gladness that bubbles up within. The kingdom has received new citizens. We have received new brothers and sisters who we'll know and spend eternity with. This is a cause of great joy as he reflects on what it is he's actually seeing. But what I want to do is just I want to apply this just a little bit in instruction and exhortation. Think for yourself, what causes joy? We see one thing right here. But think about it in terms of, of your life. What, what causes joy and are you lacking in it? I think some of us can find ourselves regularly lacking this sense of joy that is here. And so let us just be instructed from the truth that is contained in the text. We've learned that joy comes really at its root from seeing the glorious works of God. 
What is had here is the fruit of God's work in the world. This is what causes joy to spring up. And so what are we supposed to pursue? How, how is it that we cultivate joy in our own lives? <clears throat> this is a different application from the text. Obviously, application is taking the truth that we find here into another area and saying this is how it works out here. Well, what I would call you to if you are to pursue joy in your life is to dedicate yourself to pray for an hour with a group of Christians in this local church. Why? Well, in prayer, we cry out to God and ask him to meet our desires in various different ways. The, the core essence of prayer is, is not talking to God per se. It's rather bringing our desires to God. In the area of marriage, the area of our homes, the area of our uh, churches or our society. And we ask with Psalm 86, 4, saying, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And when God answers, what we see is his active presence, his active moving in our lives. We see him restore. Respond as it were, though we won't get into uh, theology proper, the theology of God. God has created the world in such a way where we can petition him and he, in, in a sense, responds to it and actually answers. We ask for healing and he does that or we ask for him to guide us and he closes doors and opens other ones very evidently or we need uh, wisdom, and he gives us a specific scripture text to uh, guide our decision-making and our acting. He answers our prayers by dropping things in our lap that <laughs> have no apparent cause other than the hand of God. <clears throat> These are the works of God, and we could, I could endlessly go on about how he answers our prayers, but these are the things that make glad, whether it be conversion or it be a simple answer to prayer in other ways. This is a way to pursue joy as a group of Christians. And, and so in the past, there's been a number of initiatives to pray, which haven't so worked uh, from my part. However, this time, uh, most recently, I've partnered with Ellen Stevens, and we have created a, a prayer time, and we invite everybody to come on Thursday. However, I recognize that as a commuter church, it might be difficult to carve out the specific time that works for her and I, her and the Stevens house, and some others uh, around. So I have another solution. And another exhortation for you. you. You should find one other person and or family to partner with you in your particular area. If you live in Corning, do it in Corning. If you live in Orland, do it there. Red Bluff, Los Molinos, wherever. If you can't make Thursday evening together with us, ask another family to pray weekly or biweekly. Somewhere in the local church, not outside the local church. I'm talking about you internally. Find somebody who you can regularly pray with together pursue joy together here uh i could give more exhortations as to why but <clears throat> if you need assistance we're going through systematically learning how to pray sometimes we just default to praying for ouchies and hurties as we might call them in the house which are okay 
But what's even better is to pray for the marriages in this church. Or what's even better is to pray for um, the way that we are interacting with the world or, or lack thereof and need encouragement. Or um, to go through different ways in order to pray scripture. I can help you with that. I would love for you to petition me for that. But what I would like you to do is to consider, highly consider, and uh, set a time and place where you can gather as a group of Christians and pray together. Now, having that application related to joy, I do want to go on to our text. This there is a second response that Luke says in our text. Not only did this conversion, this really witnessing the, the grace of God in action in, in their lives, not only was there gladness, there was also a desire to exhort or really um, encourage the believers. And there it says in the ESV, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. There's bunches of different ways to translate this because none of our translators like how it fits in modern English. It's not really according to our vernacular. I I do like the most literal translation, which I could provide is let the purpose of your hearts continue in the Lord. It's as literal as it can get. But to elaborate, because it's kind of weird in the way that it's worded for us modern hearers, is Barnabas is really encouraging the believers to align their deepest desires with the will of God in Scripture. To align our desires with what is written. Okay, Get, get those into sync and continue in that way. Our, our purposes, the steadfast purpose of our hearts, as it were, as he says, with the will of God. In in other words, we could say that this is the same message that Jesus teaches us in the the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, which is hallowed be or uh, an updated, more understandable word that we actually use is sanctify your name. This is the center. Really, this is, if you understand that You understand the whole Lord's Prayer. Sanctify your name. And what it means is that God, in other words, would be glorified in all things. And that is at the core of our desires. So our strongest, most pervasive desires and goals must run along the same track as the word of God and its central purposes, which is that God would be sanctified above all things, set apart as glorious and wonderful in all the ways that it works itself out. That is what he's encouraging them to. And there is, though it feels sufficient to me, a threefold reason as to why He's filled with joy and gives this exhortation. And Luke says it in three ways. He's a, he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of faith. <clears throat> now, Luke is giving us three descriptions, which we're going to look at individually. But what I want you to 
understand is it's it's more of like looking at a diamond. It's just looking from different angles, different facets of the same reality. And there's different nuances of how to get at that reality. So we do this all the time in how we speak. We might just have a direct assertion of kinds and then relate it to an analogy of sorts and then maybe illustrate it in another way. <clears throat> that's, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. And what he's trying to communicate first is that he is joyful and exhorts the church because he's a good man. This is what good men do. And good is, a, I think, a fascinating term. It's also very flexible. Here, it refers to his conduct, his exhortation. He, in this way, proves himself worthy of being of his Christian calling. <clears throat> and we could ask, how can this be seen? Well, in his current situation, he's derived joy from seeing God's will accomplished. That's what makes him good. He's a good man with reference to his desires. And secondly, he encourages the church to faithfulness. We just covered a couple weeks ago, Ephesians 4.15, which says to speak the truth in love. And that's how the church grows up. He's fulfilling that command in his actions. And so he's also a good man with reference to his conduct, his desires, his conduct, his internal, external life. He's a good man all around. That's the idea that's being communicated in our text. <clears throat> and to further explain what he means, he says he's also full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> when the Bible says, and I think we do this in English as well, full of or filled with, it conveys the idea of control. The, th the thing that fills somebody is uh, what has a ruling influence over a person. So the Bible says variously that people are, are filled with rage. That is, they are emotionally controlled by this hot, intense reaction, really. <clears throat> they, are, they are guided and, and possessed, as it were, by this this powerful emotion inside, full of rage, as we have seen in Acts, or you could say, um, full of full of wine in a, in a sinful way. You're overcome with a, a another powerful substance. So it could be immaterial, it could be material, but it's this idea of of ruling influence. So here, the same is to be said. There is a a ruling influence and in, in propulsion. That is by God's spirit. The Holy Spirit is in control of his innermost being. And what's the evidence of that? Well, he's a good man. And, and we saw that just briefly. But as we've seen in Acts and as is used in modern charismatic circles, uh, the speaking in tongues is like a very visible manifestation of the, the powerful influence, even seemingly uncontrollable influence of God over the body. See, so in, in one sense, people say I'm spirit filled and they just mean they practice a, a modern form of speaking in tongues. 
<clears throat> However, I am a reformed cessationist, as you call it, uh, who doesn't believe that's a normative experience of the church. And so what I would commend to you is that what would be the other ways that someone can be described as being filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it look like in our, in our experience today? <clears throat> and the two reasons that I've already provided for him being a good man are really what I would commend to you. The description of a good man is that they have joy over God and his deeds, his good deeds, and you exhort the church. You, you encourage your brothers and sisters to faithfulness. That's, that's what it means to be full of the Spirit, really. Further, we could say that it's, in a strict sense, a willing submission to the operations of the Spirit of God in our lives. <clears throat> but since this can feel fuzzy, I think there's a third description given, full of faith. He is a good man, full of spirit and faith. That is full of faith. <clears throat> the third reason that's attached to, ex to explain how Barnabas is a good man is really explanatory of the second phrase, full of the spirit, and cannot be understood of being filled with the, I, I just want to make this clear because this is like the common mistake that I literally hear on a weekly basis. I guarantee you hear it all the time. You may even do this yourself. In fact, I know that some of you do this all the time. Is full of faith, full of the spirit. These things are mutually interpretive and they're never, ever, 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 ever supposed to be pulled apart. You cannot be filled with the Spirit, if you're not filled with faith, they're together always. They're mutually interpretive. In other words, the, the point of this phrase is to say that Barnabas trusts the word of God. He has faith in something real that's communicated to us in the word of Scripture. It's objective. It's not simply subjective. It's not a ruling influence that we can't define. It's a ruling influence that has at its source and definition the Holy Scriptures. We must always hold together the Word and the Spirit. Um, and that is because, very simply, the Holy Spirit inspired the Word, which He always acts consistent with. The Holy Spirit does not inspire people to live contrary to the word. That is something that many charlatans confidently assert can happen and does not. This is not only theologically true that the word and spirit are always bound, but it also clarifies what comes off to us as a fuzzy, pietistic, subjective notion. <laughs> it's just a, a vague, amorphous thing. He's full of faith. And we go like, well, what does that actually mean? It sounds nice, but it actually means nothing at all in most modern vocabulary. But what I want you to be able to use it for is something that is true, that, that we should know that those who are full of faith are also bearing the fruit of faith, which is faithfulness to God's word. That's what it means. It, it can be measured, calculated, written down on a piece of paper because you can observe it. 
And somebody's full of faith and is not uh, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, in other words, because these things are mutually interpretive, they're not. It's just in word only. The fruit of faith is the acting out of the Scriptures in life. <clears throat> and so the person who's full of faith or full of Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of faith, which is faithfulness to God's Word. <clears throat> Imperfectly, albeit. Now, Barnabas's ministry, uh, he's joyful and he exhorts the church. We're told yet again here, look in, in verse 24 at the end, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is to say that Barnabas was used as a means to add to an already big group even more. Barnabas's ministry was successful to the Antioch church. It's, he was used by God uh, for the abundant pouring out of grace. We don't know how large this church was exactly. Just know that in two different places, it emphasizes a great, well, actually another one, <laughs> three places at least, that it was a great many people. There, there was a, a sufficient uh, a sufficient multitude as it is here in scripture and having an influx of people what do you do well let's see what barnabas does in verse 25 so barnabas went to tarsus to look for saul and when he had found him he brought him to antioch let's just pause for a second and just say that barnabas goes it's necessary right now to go solicit help from other people. <laughs> he goes and finds an apostle uh, that is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he says, I, I want to join with you in ministry. I, I need your help. You need to come and supply what is needed in this church. They have a task to accomplish, which we're going to look at in just a second, but he didn't seem to be sufficient in and of himself, which is why the New Testament pattern as a whole, always talks about elders or pastors or overseers or bishops, whatever you want to call them. They're all the same office, multiple, because it's necessary for the task that is given uh, to any, any local church. So he gets aid from the Apostle Paul. And then what I want to focus on for the rest of our time is what they do now with this church there's mass conversion, and then what does Barnabas call Paul alongside him to do? Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What is important here to recognize for our purposes and an explanation of what the text means is that although the command had been given in the very beginning, this is recounted at the end of the Gospels in various different ways, and then at the beginning of Acts, which is really the same event, the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, right there in the same time period, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells them to go 
make disciples of all nations, okay? Or, or preach the gospel to the whole world, something like that. And so it's instructive for us to know that although they had seen a large conversion of people, they don't then press on and just move to the rest of the world. Like we're gonna, like our, our plan is to see people converted, baptize them, great. And then we're just gonna go and move on. It's very instructive for us that in the evangelizing of the world, which is still in view, it's, it's not a, a tertiary note. It's still like the forefront of the mission. They still find the time and see it very profitable to remain a whole year. Two, two highly skilled and accomplished ministers of the Lord to train up a church for a whole year, meeting, meeting on a weekly basis as we've seen in Acts. They meet on a, on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. <clears throat> Rather, instead of moving on, they um, don't see initial conversion as a sufficient uh, thing for the, the church. They need more than that. They need uh, a training and, and knowledge. They need to come to a certain level, whatever that is, I don't know, <laughs> certain level of doctrinal competence in the word of God, especially considering they don't have a, a personal copy of the scriptures at this point too. <clears throat> this is, of course, really simply an outworking of the Great Commission. I, I find it fascinating as I've reflected on it and quoted it feels like billions of times Matthew 28 all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and disciple the nations baptizing them and teaching them all to obey all that I've commanded you lo I'm with you even to the ends of the age Matthew 28 great commission some of you have it memorized like that too and the funny part about Matthew's gospel is it it's not focusing on conversion. You notice that it, it, it does, it touches it being baptized, but that's, that's what you do when conversion has happened. And then the real emphasis is teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Something that's usually left out in our understanding of what the great commission is all about. That is about church building. Uh, not, not this building, but building the body of Christ up internally and bringing it to health. That is really the focus, um, though it's to the ends of the earth. Now, as this is happening, they're building up the church. Let me just try to pull this together in a helpful way, pulling out various different things in the New Testament. Discipleship is something that is ongoing and important and so they, they see it not only as necessary for that church, it's commanded in Matthew 28, as we saw. It's, it's profitable for the church as a whole. It's, it's necessary in that way. But it's also necessary for the evangelization of the people on the other side of the world. In order for the mission to continue... They plant themselves in a place and build up the church there because they know they're not going to be there when Christ comes back. They're going to die and he's not coming back yet. And so they're, they're like, okay, the ends of the globe is pretty far away. It means a whole thing. Okay. So they're not expecting 
contrary to common belief. They're not expecting for Christ to come back right immediately. They're expecting a time whereby the nations are gathered in. It's the beginning of Acts. And so what they have to do is establish solid, healthy churches so that that church will survive and be able to perpetuate the mission so that when they die and their children die, their grandchildren can continue the mission. They can continue to build and work toward the completion of this, which is all by the grace of God. And so Ephesians chapter 2, which we've recently gone over, has a a wonderful statement about the, the function of what the apostles are all about. There's a lot of confusion in our day, and I've spent a lot of time on this in the past. I won't, I won't do it here now. But one of the main points that's given in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the apostles are laying, apostles and New Testament prophets are laying a foundation for the church of all the ages. The, the, the point is to establish a Antioch here as like a foundation stone and to make sure that the, 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 the New Testament church is grounded in what they need to know to accomplish the duties which God has given to them, which is a global reality. It's a whole world sort of reality. And so <clears throat> at this time, they just have the work of the apostles and their, their teaching that they can hear from their mouth. What we'll have as an advantage in some Christians later on towards towards the the end of the first century is or 65 AD, right? This is earlier than that. 65 AD or so, they'll have the completion of the canon, the completion of the New Testament, and they'll have that too, the work of the apostles. And these things are what furnish the church to do its mission. I I hope you understand that because I want to apply this to us right now. That is, the mission is insecure and not really able to be accomplished without the building in this first century of the the foundation of the church and what I've talked about. And it applies to us today. The, The church, as my first application, needs to have a particular mark that is healthy doctrine. That is a mark that is um, essential. If, if, if they couldn't do it, they couldn't complete the mission without the apostles' teaching. I'm far inferior uh, than the apostles. I'm far inferior. You, you, we can't do it without it here. And, and so there is a need to have more than what is communicated in order to be converted. That is, there needs to be a healthy standard of of doctrine. In in our day and age, there are many uh, churches in America that have, have drunk deeply from the wells of revivalism who think that the most important part of the church is getting people to walk an aisle and shake a hand. Um, this is this is not the case, not according to uh, what happens here. We have to have a bigger theology than John 3.16 and a shallow understanding of that at best. We ought to pray really for our church and the church in America that we would have Paul and Barnabas's pattern of ministry, which is strong, healthy local churches who know what they believe. They understood that Christ was the God-man, 
They just might not know very much about that. You can't be saved without knowing that. They, they knew that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't be saved without knowing that. They knew that Christ died for sinners. They, they had to know that, right? They, there are certain primary things that they were taught, but the filling out of the understanding is what goes on after conversion. The growth in, in lots of churches will... Um, it can have the appearance of being healthy, but not produce uh, mature Christians. And so what happens is that you might have a flourishing church for a generation or two, but in the long run, no one has enough knowledge to really pass the faith on in a meaningful way. And so it fizzles out. What needs to happen is a robustness in the first generation that is uh, extended and grown into the second generation because healthy doctrine is not isolated to our heads. It, it is a fact that we act on what we believe. And um, though this is a process, so the mark of a healthy church, the first mark is healthy doctrine. The second cannot be removed from it. It's always directly connected, which is a healthy lifestyle. Now, if you have a church with a healthy lifestyle, and I'm thinking about individuals as well as the corporate uh, church and being very broad here, if you see people acting out the faith in the right way, then it probably leads back to healthy understanding, probably. But we should not be um, naive and think that it happens all at once. You can believe the right thing, and then you're going to make the right application. It actually takes a long time for good doctrine to disseminate into the fingertips, into the toes, and really hit the road. You can see a a good many people come to write doctrine and then live completely contrary to it for (laughs) long periods of time. Because it takes a while. This is not an overnight thing. It's, a, it's an issue of maturing from a child to an adult. It takes, takes a process. It takes hard work. But in the long haul, a healthy church can be identified not only by its beliefs, but over time, its practices. These include what we do internally. So having a robust standard for church membership that reflects a proper understanding of, of conversion, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't go, oh, you can do this or that really well. Uh, do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> yeah, he's a good teacher, right? Like, okay, yeah, come do this for us. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, we, we don't want unconverted people uh, leading the ministry of the church. Pe- people who don't know Christ shouldn't be communicant members of the church. However, on the external side, it's true as well. Not only should there be internally healthy practices that are explicitly tied to our doctrinal commitments, there ought also to be healthy church practices outside, sharing the gospel, inviting members of the church in for hospitality and inviting strangers in and things like this, being involved in the community in some uh, form or fashion as a as a salt and light and just spreading God's kingdom in your work. <clears throat> Churches that don't eventually do those things, I'm not saying that there's not a time where 
where we can be uh, focused on one thing and not the other. All I'm saying is that over time, a church that doesn't have both has some sort of sickness that needs a healing, needs a mending. It has some sort of errant ways that need a reforming and a calling into right practice because of right doctrine. These things go together and they should be instructive. This is what the apostles did. Preach the gospel, conversion comes, and then they train up the disciples so that they might progressively obey Christ and teach others to do likewise. Call others into the fold and disciple themselves. It's not just a pastoral duty, it's a church, it's a universal church duty that we all participate in. So, in light of that, and seeing that our time is drawing thin, is that a phrase? Our time is drawing thin? That's those I'm mixing metaphors, sorry. <laughs> I, I have five exhortations for you. <clears throat> five exhortations connected to this and an old one or two. Church, I first exhort you to have the same priorities here that we see in the apostles, that we, we focus on the importance of the corporate gathering of the church. This is foundational. They can't be taught if they don't gather. Say Okay, so this, this is really a foundational element. Um, church attendance is something that ought to be top priority for you. Uh, our life is done here. It, it can be extended. It ought to be extended to other places, but it starts on a Sunday morning, gathering to, all together and exhorting them. You'll notice that they, they gathered and exhorted them all, meaning that by and large, the normative pattern was all to be there all the time. That's, that's the idea. So the first, that's the first exhortation. The second one is, is to take pains, make it your job to understand and embrace good doctrine that is preached and taught from the scriptures here. Make notes in your Bible, make notes on your on the back of your bulletin in a journal. Formulate questions like, I don't understand this. What does this mean? And, and go talk to another member of the church. See if they, they're sleeping at that part of church. You, you, you need to do your homework, do hard work. Formulate questions. Say, well, why do we do that? What, what, what's this? Why do we confess sins? I other churches don't do that, or, or some do, but I'm not familiar with them. It's not part of my church tradition. Why do we do that? Just write down questions, do homework, understand why you do what you do, <clears throat> and slowly recognize that we've been telling you this for three years as to why we do what we do, slowly over time. Third, be teachable. Be open to learning what the Bible says, not what you have been taught. That's good. Remember all those things that you've been taught that are good. But be open to what this scripture says. And the next scripture says, God has put you here so that you would know what it says today. Not just yesterday, not just tomorrow. You're supposed to be teachable in reforming your thoughts and actions and affections, your desires, in light of the doctrine that you hear insofar as it conforms to the scriptures. Never believe anything apart from the scriptures. Third, or fourth, excuse me, I challenge you, again, to read through the 1689. I challenge you to embrace and see how faithful it is to scripture. 
I contend that it's the best confession ever written. And though I expect uh, superior ones to be written in future generations, yet I'm born. You should read these things and be instructed by them. Conform your understanding of scripture to the sound words of the 1689 and, and understand how it is teaching what the scriptures say. Fifthly, if you have not uh, written a 90-second gospel presentation yet, do so. This week. This week, do so. Make sure you can communicate everything that needs to be known about how to know God through Christ in 90 seconds. And trust that the Lord is the one who is able to raise dead sinners to life. But be prepared in doing those things. Not only focus on the doctrinal aspect, do that, but also focus on the evangelistic, evangelistic ex, expectation. So if you, you have a presentation that you're ready to give and you're reading through and understanding the 1689, you have both healthy uh, doctrine and then you know how to live it out initially. And then you'll learn so evermore over time. But because we need help in doing this, let us close in prayer.